Grab your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. So we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. Last week, we looked at really three kind of major things that I wanted us to remember from, from last week. So I just want to recap them again this morning. They came from the first eight verses of chapter 2, and they were very simple. And it was, number one, God really does answer prayer. And that's why Nehemiah prayed so often. Number two was that God really is good. And we saw that at the beginning of chapter two. We're going to see that at the end of chapter two, but really all throughout the book of Nehemiah. And then thirdly was another thing that was quite as simple. It was Nehemiah's God can be your God too. Very easy things to remember. But we also saw from Nehemiah's example that praying is key, but planning is prudent. Okay? So that means it's it's important, it's smart, it's wise to plan. When he stood before King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, he knew that God was faithful to keep his promises, and he knew that God was with him. And so that's what gave him confidence to go in with boldness before the king, the king that could say, off with his head, He went in there boldly and said, here's what's going on and why I'm sad. And the king, by God's grace, was sympathetic. God's good hand was upon him, is how Nehemiah says it. And his requests were granted without opposition in the least bit at this point. Fortunately, opposition was just over the horizon. That's where we'll get into here in our chapter today. Not everyone was in favor of Jerusalem being rebuilt Not everyone was on the Lord's side, if you will. So, Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Turn, if you're not already there, turn there and let's read that together. And then we'll pray. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat and the Horonite... And Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up, by, I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. 
But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray your blessings on our time together in your word. You've been with us already this morning, this this whole time we've been gathered together in in our songs, in our time of, of thinking and praying for missionaries and other churches, in praying for our loved ones and our friends who are sick or in need. Lord, you've been with us this whole time, and we pray now that your spirit in us, your spirit present with us, would give light and meaning to these words. That they would not just be history, a good story that we leave having built up knowledge in our brains, but Lord, that these things would affect our hearts because out of the heart, the mouth speaks and out of the heart comes how we live. And so I pray that that's changed according to your word and your spirit this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So as we go through these verses, kind of a few at a time, I I just want us to see in verse 9, we kind of get a recap. So there's safe travel. This is what Nehemiah has been given, letters of passage to be able to travel properly, a passport, if you will. He uses the term beyond the river. Most likely that's a term used for the Euphrates River that's there. It was kind of a big uh, separating landmark um, that separated two areas. And it's kind of like if you cross the Missouri, the Mississippi River from Missouri into Illinois, uh, that separates our states. Okay. And this is how it was with the Euphrates River. And so there's some things that you can do in Missouri that you can't do in Illinois, right? We'll leave it at that. But there's, there's a difference there. And it was, it was, it would have been similar in, in this time. They were ruled differently. And, uh, and so he needed a chance. Um, or, or uh, a passport, if you will, to be able to pass and to do the things. I just realized that we've got some Illinois family here with us, so no offense. Just different. Just different. So he's got written approval from the king to show to these people, like, hey, I have permission to be here and to do these things and and that sort of thing. And look at verse 10. This is where the opposition hits. So so far in the story, things have gone relatively according to plan, right? Nehemiah has spent time in prayer, maybe months in prayer and in, in times of fasting. He's talked to the king, the high ruler, and the king has been sympathetic and supportive of his plans. Well, now, all of a sudden, it's not going so well. There's, there's guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, these guys heard somebody wants to do good for Israel and it angered them, made them mad. And they, as we see later on in this chapter, they start to do, they will do something about it. So it seems as though Tobiah was possibly a secretary of Sanballat's. Um, later on, we'll see that he's the one that's kind of sending letters on his behalf. Uh, he could have likely been a trusted um, advisor to Sanballat uh, included in his planning. We're not totally sure uh, the relationship 
there. Um, but when these two guys heard that somebody was coming to seek the welfare of the people of God, they didn't like it. It displeased them greatly. And we, well, why, we maybe ask. Why did just somebody wanting to come and see these people do well, why did that upset them so much? Well, we're given some clues as far as their heritage. Sanballat was a Horonite, it says, from the town of Horam, Horan in Moab. So probably Sanballat was a Moabite. Tobiah, it says, was an Ammonite, possibly a place of authority in a connecting area. Um, but these two people groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites, came from inappropriate relationships within the family of Lot after Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed. So, more often than not, when we see these people in the Old Testament, they are antagonistic towards the people of God, considered enemies of God. And we see in just the representation of these two men, at least, that's certainly the case here. These guys are enemies of what the Lord is trying to do. Now, just a side note here. In God's sovereign plan and purposes, he chooses to redeem and bless even some of those who come from backgrounds like this. Because if you look through the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, who do we find? We find Ruth, who was a Moabite by, by birth. And so these people are not irredeemable, but they're showing by their actions what they think and believe about God. Just like Nehemiah does in his prayer, these guys in their opposition to the Lord are showing and revealing what's truly in their hearts. So you've got an Ammonite and a Moabite, and they don't want anything good to come for the Jews. Look at verse 11 with me. The, the whole trip is kind of just summed up in this statement. Nehemiah says, so I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. couple of things to just point out. He actually went. He went. He didn't just spend months in preparation and planning and prayer. He put the wheels into motion. The rubber hit the road. Nehemiah went. Okay, that's an important thing to understand. But it says that he, he, was, he went and he was there for three days. Three days was a typical kind of amount of time to, to regroup and rest after that kind of a trip. Um, if you look at, maybe some of you guys have maps in your Bibles. I don't know if it's got like little gauges, but likely this was like an 800 mile plus trip. They didn't have cars, they didn't have big rigs, they didn't have anything like that. So they're traveling probably by horseback. Remember they stop off to get lumber for the project at some point. So they've got timber. This is a long trip. This is not like going down to Lowe's in Winsville or Quincy or whichever one's closer and, and getting your su supplies and materials and getting where you need to go. Uh, I talked with a pre-Civil War historian uh, friend this week, and he said it depends on how big the, the group was that traveled with them, but this process, this trip could have taken six months, maybe longer, Depending, they probably weren't traveling on the Sabbath, right? So there's just a lot of things that could have kept them. I mean, you guys have been on road trips in your car for a lot less time than that. And you feel like you need three days to recoup when you get back, right? I, I know I have. So, so he goes, long trip. He gets there. Ezra does the same thing. If you look back after his trip, he takes about three days, uh, just kind of recuperating. But then at the, on the end of the third day of rest, Nehemiah 
launches his plan into action. He still doesn't tell. Really, it seems like nobody but the king knew what the plan was. He says he didn't reveal it at this point. Verse 12 points that out. He says, I haven't revealed this to anybody. And so he goes in the night. Well, there's a reason why, because in the daytime, people would see him. They'd be asking what he was doing. So he goes in the night with just a few people, with just a few horses, only the ones that they were riding on. They weren't taking a bunch of supplies with them. They go up. And then verses 15 or 13 through 15, they give kind of a, um, a practical, a map, if you will, of, of how they went around the city. So some of your Bibles might have a map here. My study Bible did, and it was helpful, but he mentions a few of the, the landmarks, the Valley Gate, the Dragon Spring, uh, the Dung Gate, the Fountain Gate, the King's Pool, the Valley Gate. I actually said that one twice, but uh, he went to these places, and he kinda, it seems like he kind of made a circle, and he went. Um, historians, scholars that I could look at, they're not totally sure where all these places are located. So they've unearthed some things. They've been able to identify some of these gates and pools and things like that. Um, but, but they're not sure on all of them. One thing that you can probably guess, the dung gate, you guys, you guys know what that was for, right? That's the gate that they take the waste to the city dump. Okay? That's what they did. And so verse 14 says that Nehemiah and his crew, they ran into some places around the wall where they couldn't get by. Again, remember the state that the walls were in. They were dilapidated. They were broken down. And this just kind of illustrates that fact. His animal couldn't even get through some of these places. So they're going by foot. It was bad shape. Your, your version uh, may, in chapter, or verse 13, use the word inspected. It says, Nehemiah inspected the walls. Can you imagine... Um, I don't know that he'd ever seen the walls of Jerusalem before. He just heard reports of it. And when you just, when you just hear a report of something, you kind of form this mental picture. And most of the time, it's not really quite as bad as it, as it is in reality. And I think that's probably how it was for Nehemiah. I can't imagine him, his, him doing this night ride around the city with a dry eye. I think he's looking at the state of things, and I think it affects him. He inspects the wall. This this idea of inspecting is kind of like probing. He's, he's looking, it's like probing a wound to see how bad the infection is or how bad off you are. This is what he's doing to the walls. How bad is this? He'd heard the reports anticipated what it would look like, but now with fresh eyes being fully rested, he, he, he puts those eyes on the situation himself. He had to know how bad a shape the walls were in before he could make a full plan on how to fix them, though, couldn't he? He had to know. In a spiritual sense, we, we could apply this to our own heart and our own life. We have to see how bad a shape our hearts are in before we'll ever ask God to fix them. So have you taken stock of of your life? What shape your heart is in lately? Does it resemble the walls of Jerusalem and being broken down in need of repair? The thing is, concrete and rebar don't fix that kind of of a problem. That's needed in the physical sense, as we'll see, 
But only the power of the gospel by the love of God through the sacrifice of Jesus can actually fix what's broken within us. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, this uh, again emphasizes that Nehemiah hadn't told anyone what he was planning. Uh, But I want to point this out. Even though he hadn't told anybody what he was going to be doing, he kept it to himself. Even though that, that was true, he knew that he wasn't going to be able to do this by himself. You see that? He knew he was going to need others to do the work. Verse 16 says, and the rest who were to do the work. Part of Nehemiah's planning was going to be delegation and organizing help. He knew he couldn't do it by himself. He knew that he would need the people of God to accomplish the will of God. He knew the scriptures. He'd prayed diligently. He had planned properly. And now he knew that recruiting others, motivating others to do the work alongside of him was going to be necessary for building up what God was wanting them to do. Look at verse 17 and the beginning of 18. He reveals to them now what the Lord had put into his heart. He says this, you see the trouble we're in. He's looking around at the people. They've lived there for a long time with the walls in the state that they were in. But he points it out fresh with a a new fresh eyes coming in. And he says, guys, look around. Can't you see the trouble that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He says, come, let's build. Let's build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. It's, It's very likely that the residents of Jerusalem here, some of them were born there. They didn't know anything else but busted up, broken down walls in their lifetime. Maybe some of the older ones knew what it was like beforehand. Certainly they'd all heard the stories. They likely weren't sitting around in the town just twiddling their thumbs waiting for some superman to come and fix everything. It's likely that they had just gotten to the point where they accepted the situation. It's been decades, maybe over a 100 years they just accepted that this was an impossible job to rebuild these walls. It's not, it's not worth our time. People have tried before. Enemies stopped them. They lost hope. But I think there's great wisdom in how Nehemiah talks to the people here. He says, you see the trouble we're in. That's obvious, isn't it? For, for a guy coming in from the outside, it's obvious this is a bad deal. Jerusalem is, could be in big trouble here. The people living there maybe didn't see it that way anymore. You know, we've, we've lived this way for a long time. It just kind of illustrates the fact that when stuff is messed up in our lives, sometimes it's easier just to ignore it and go on than to actually fix it than to deal with it. But what happens when you just sweep stuff under the rug and you forget about it? All kinds of worse things happen. You guys know this, and yet it's the inclination of our heart to keep doing that. So Nehemiah comes in with fresh eyes, and he says, no, 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 no. This is actually a bigger problem than you realize. You see the trouble we're in. 
The more we ignore the problem, the less we realize how bad it really is. But that's not all that Nehemiah says. There's more wisdom here. He says, you, you see the trouble we are in. Let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision. When he comes riding in to Jerusalem, he doesn't start pointing fingers, does he? He maybe could have to the leaders in the city. He could have pointed to them and said, why did you let it stay this way? Why didn't you keep building? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't come in flying the hero flag thinking he's going to be everybody's savior and fix all the problems. Doesn't come in placing blame or criticizing. He actually comes in and he identifies the major problem as his own problem along with them, doesn't he? Look at the problem. Look at the state we are in, he says. Let us build the walls so that we may no longer suffer derision. He wasn't there to do the work for the people. He was there to work with them. We find in the end of 17 that the rebuilding project of these walls did involve bricks and mortar and sweat. But actually, it was about the hearts of the people. Look at what he, look at what he says. He says, let's build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision. He could have said so that we may be protected from those who want to harm us. But he doesn't. That we may no longer suffer derision. So the people would be rebuilding the walls, but at the same time, they'd be tearing down shame and fear. Each stone that was placed in that wall would be like physically, but also emotionally and spiritually building up this foundation of faith that had taken hit after hit over the years. Each gate that was returned to its hinges would be a reminder that God was not finished with them. We still see this today, I think, in our own lives. God's rebuilding work often involves physical action for us, but always involves spiritual action. It always does. God's calling us to things. He called Nehemiah to this task, and Nehemiah physically went, and he would physically set brick on brick. But there's a lot more going on under the surface here than just rebuilding a physical wall, isn't there? So that we may no longer suffer derision, he says. That was the big motivating factor in Nehemiah's mind. It included and involved the sweat of building the walls, but it was about so much more. I firmly believe that if we follow where the Lord is leading us, just like their faith was built in building up the wall, if we follow the Lord's lead in this, our faith is built too. Nehemiah then, he tells the story. Right, So he gives his personal testimony of how God had brought him to be with them. He tells them of how the good hand of God was upon him, and he tells them about how the king had been ready to help. Could have gone way differently than that, but the king was sympathetic and helped him. He told everybody about how the stuff for the project had been provided. Boom, right there. He said, sure, go, get it. He told them about how the good hand of God had providentially worked out everything for these things to happen. Look at verse 18. He gave the people his testimony of how God had moved in his life, and this is how they responded, and I love this. They said, wow, good for you. I'm glad to hear that. That's not what they said. 
They didn't say, hey, that's a cool story. I'm glad to hear that God of yours was good to you. I don't believe him, but, you know, I'm glad that he did something good for you. That's not what they said. Here's how they responded. They said, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. I I just love how this plays out in the story. Nehemiah's testimony of God's goodness and providence had reminded the people, remember people that had probably been stuck in bad patterns for years, it reminded these people that their situation wasn't irreversible. It was fixable. God can change things in an instant. And if you've known him for much time at all, you can testify to that fact too. Things can change in just an instant when God moves. And that's what the people needed to hear. Maybe that's something that we need to hear this morning. Whatever situation it is in your life that feels very dire and irreversible, when we put our faith in in the Lord and submit to his rule in our life, it's not irreversible. The Lord can change things in an instant. God moves. And, And look what happens here. The people, they didn't just talk the talk. They did say, hey, well, let's rise up and build. That's talking the talk. They did that. But it wasn't just that, was it? Look what else they did. They prepared their hands for the good work. They strengthened their hands for the good work. They didn't just say, okay, I, we hear you, Nehemiah. You're probably right. The wall should be built. Good observation. They didn't just go there. They went past that and they said, you're right. Let's get to work. That's pretty incredible in my mind because they could have responded any number of negative ways. They could have have just kind of denied that they really needed the walls fixed. We've been living here for a long time, Nehemiah. Who are you to come in and say that we're not living right? Does this sound familiar? Who are you to come in and say we need something different? Why stir the pot? Why change things up? Things were okay. We were surviving. Could have said that. They could have heard Nehemiah's plans for the project and been like, that's just too much work. Nehemiah, that, that sounds all fine and good and everything for you. Um, I hope it goes well for you, but I've got enough work of my own to do. I don't have time to invest in this project. I don't have the energy to add anything else to my plate right now. Thanks, but no thanks. They could have said that. They could have also suspected that there would be significant opposition to the work because it had probably already happened once before. Started this project and then bad things happened. You know, they say, well, we've we've tried this before and it didn't work. In fact, in some ways we're worse off than when we started. Why try again? They're just going to try to stop us and since they're more powerful and our walls are already broken down, we won't be able to stop them. We won't be able to finish the project and complete it. Thankfully, though, the people didn't respond any of these ways. They, they said, let's do it. Let's get up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. They walked the walk. They strengthened their hands for the good work. It means that they got ready. They prepared. They went home and they got their freshest pair of work gloves. Right? And they put on their boots. And they got their shovels and their trowels. They, they did their calisthenics and did a little warm-up. When you get to a certain age, you need to do that before you get to work. 
They got ready. They Not only did they prepare for that, I think that they encouraged one another in this work too. Their neighbors are all getting ready and they're like, oh, okay, I guess I got to get ready too. I got to go do my part in all of this. The crazy part of this is, is some of those, those, like, uh, those things that they could have said in, um, contrast to what Nehemiah was suggesting, some of those things came true. They actually happened, didn't they? We, we see it. Right in verse 19. Those negative responses would be right. The project was gonna be a lot of work, and in 19 we see that there is opposition to them. Uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and now they've wrangled a, a friend to come in and bug the Jews with them, Geshem. And they jeered at them, and they mocked them and despised them. Now we've seen Sanballat and Tobiah before. Um, again, they've brought somebody else. Isn't that how it goes oftentimes? When we're attempting to follow the Lord's lead, that opposition comes Sometimes from places we wouldn't expect. They heard that the people were motivated to work, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild their reputation as God's people. And they didn't like it. These guys didn't like it because they didn't like God. So they laughed and they ridiculed and they made fun of them. And then they started telling lies about them. Look at what they says. Are you rebelling against the king? Now that's a, that's a big deal, isn't it? Right For an all-powerful ruler to rebel against him, no king wants an insurrection. We saw what uh, happened to the babies around Jesus' birth time, right? When there was a threat of a new king. The king just had all the babies under two years old killed. So to, to threaten to start spreading this rumor is a big deal. Like, are you, are you rebelling against the king? Are you strengthening your walls so that you can attack the people of Persia? Is that what's going on here? Maybe it is. And so they're making this accusation. But I think in this, just like Nehemiah's theology was revealed when he prayed, these guys' theology, if you will, is also revealed in how they speak. They were ignorant of the hand of God. How he had moved the heart of the king, not just to give his stamp of approval to the project, but actually to fund it, didn't he? Yeah, take take this stuff. I'll give you what you need. Whatever it might be, the king was almost a partner in this work. These guys didn't understand the providence of God or the hand of God. And they had no regard for the authority of God. They just kind of, by their words, expected that the king of Persia was the highest king in the land. Wait a second, you're going to rebel against that king? That's what they said. Will you rebel against the king? Nehemiah could have actually flipped that question around and said, Wait a second, will you rebel against the king? The king of everything? But he doesn't. He answers, look at verse 20. His, his reply is important. We're going to talk about it for just a second. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's boldness continues in how he responds to these naysayers and these mockers and to their mockery. Notice he doesn't even try to answer their question, does he? He just says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. That's it. The king 
had actually partnered with them on this project, but it was going to be the king of everything that made it successful. And Nehemiah knew it. He knew it because the God that they were serving, right? He says, the God we serve, the one we serve, he's a good God. He's already established this. He's a good God, and he's a God who answers prayer, and he's a God who keeps his promises. I think it's interesting that he doesn't go into detail to these people about who the Jews were and how he had permission from the king of the land to do all of these things. He doesn't tout his position as cupbearer to the king. He doesn't even mention it to these guys. What does he start with? He starts with God. He says the God of heaven is the most important person in this story, and he will make us successful. Nehemiah doesn't claim King Artaxerxes' permission or authority to rebuild. He claims God's permission and authority. He claims a divine authority to carry out this work. These three guys that were opposing progress for the kingdom of God and for his people here, were, they were for, from some of the oldest groups of enemies of God's people. Uh, turn in your Bible back to Ezra. Keep your finger in Nehemiah, but turn back a couple of books, or one specifically to Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. This, this is not the first time that the people of God in Jerusalem in their attempts to rebuild have faced opposition. Ezra chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 3. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Hadin, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers and houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia has commanded us. These people came in claiming, oh, oh yeah, well, let us help you because we like your God too. And these leaders in, in Jerusalem had some discernment, thankfully, and they said, no, no, you have no part of us. And it's a very similar situation to what Nehemiah gets into here. He says, Nehemiah says, you have nothing to do with us. You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And you know what? The actions of these three opposers proved that this was true. They had no part in what was going on here. They had no inheritance in God's people. What about us? What about you? Let's apply this to our own hearts and lives. If somebody took a tour, if you will, around your heart, around your life, would they see the walls like they were in Jerusalem broken down? Would they see stuff that's, that's messed up and not quite right in you? Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Many lives are like cities with broken down walls. 
People are living in laziness. They see the problem, maybe. You see the strife in your marriage, the tension in your workplace, whatever the place might be. You see the problem, but you just don't have the energy to put work into it. You're lazy. Maybe you see the problem, but you just have this fear of something maybe worse happening, or this insecurity. You're not sure how it will go, and so you don't do anything. Much like the people of Jerusalem before Nehemiah got there. I would ask this. Don't hide your eyes from those broken down places in your heart. God wants to change them. And he wants to make you ready for the work that he's calling you to be a part of. The work of his kingdom. And so these are a couple questions to evaluate. Are you joining God in his work? Or are you opposing it like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem? Are you obstructing the work of God in your life? Are you encouraging one another to what God has called them to do? Do you visit with friends and family? Do you encourage them to pursue the Lord? Do you maybe need to correct some wrong thinking in their lives? No, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea, actually. Remember what the Bible says about what you should do? Are we encouraging one another to work hard, to listen to what the Lord says instead of the scoffers? Because, guys, we're hearing that all the time. We're hearing that what the Bible says is antiquated, and for you to believe in God is silly and foolish. Are we listening to the scoffers? Are we filling our minds with the encouragement of our brothers and sisters and the truth of God's word? Last question to think through is, are, are, are you preparing for the hard work of doing your part in building the kingdom of God? And when I ask that, I want you to understand that we don't actually build the kingdom of God. That's the work of the Spirit, the power of the gospel to change hearts. And yet God in his providence and wisdom includes us in there. Your testimony of God's work, redeeming work in your life, will be used for his glory if you're ready to do the work. Sometimes we need the reality of how bad things really are before we're motivated to work to fix them. And so, as you consider your own heart and life today, I want you to be challenged by something. Be challenged by the truth that positive progression forward is always accompanied by hard work. We know this. If you've tried to to be fit and to lose weight, you understand that. It's always hard work. There's there's no pill that you can take and change nothing else that will make you into the person you want to be. It takes hard work. If you want to learn a new skill, you, you don't just pick up a hammer and do it or whatever it might be, you learn it. It's work to learn it. Every positive thing forward is accompanied by hard work. So don't shrink back from it, brothers and sisters. Don't be lazy and avoid the work because you know it's going to be hard. No. Have the attitude of the Israelites when they hear the motivation of Nehemiah and they say, yeah, let's do it. We're ready. And they pick up their tools and they're ready to go. Don't shrink back from the hard work. Move towards it for your good and for the glory of God. So be challenged by that. It's going to take 
hard work. But be encouraged by this this morning. You're not alone in that work. Okay? You're not alone. You look to the person next to you on both sides in front and behind, and they're working hard for the same thing. There is not a person in this room that coasts in their Christian life every day. Because none of us have gotten there. None of us will get there. This is sanctification, brothers and sisters. You are not alone in that work. Don't lose heart. Don't become discouraged. Continue to work and do the hard work because you know that your brothers and sisters in Christ are in the trenches with you. Not only that, don't forget that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that He's given believers, is within you, convicting you of sin, motivating you to truth and to holiness and leading you to that. And I would say this too. If you've been antagonistic toward the ways and the will of God, like these three men in this story, remember what I said earlier. You're not beyond redemption. By God's grace, I would pray that today you realize that if that's true of you, if you have been antagonistic and opposing the work of God and the ways of God in your life, that you would seek forgiveness and redemption and know that when you do repent of your sin and turn from it and place your trust in Christ alone and live according to His Spirit, He's with you. He's good. And He answers prayer. Let's pray. You are good, Lord, and we thank you for the ways that you work, the ways that you challenge us, but also the ways that we see your kingdom coming. Lord, we, would, we just want to join with you in that work because it's happening already. I pray that our, our hearts, though maybe broken in some regard, maybe out of step with you, Lord, I pray that you would bind them back together with the Lord Jesus. And Lord, if, if any have been antagonistic and against who you are and what Jesus has done for them, I pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts and that they would see the truth that they can be redeemed to. Because Jesus came for the least of these, for those who were sick, not those who didn't need a doctor, but those who knew that they did. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a right view of how bad things are in our hearts without Christ, but help us to run to him for salvation, not to anything else, not to the things of this world and not to the things that distract us, but run to the only solution, and it's Jesus. Lead us in that way today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.